0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single borough order ships free right to your door. Right now get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash acast. That's 15% off at borough.com slash acast.
2: This is the Guardian. I don't think that you should go off and do this every day. This is not a decision I took lightly you really have to ask yourself very closely about, you know, what are your values, what do you believe in, what are your lines in the stand? what do you want to demonstrate to your children that has been important enough to stand up for something where you believe in even when it costs. That's why I'm on the back bench, because I've got the freedom to do that now, and that's what I want to concentrate on doing.
0: Hello, I'm Paul Carp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. I'm here with political reporter Josh Butler, and we're joined in Sydney by the member for Barraura, Julian Lisa, who on Tuesday quit his positions on the Liberal front bench as Shadow Attorney General and Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians. Welcome, Julian.
2: Nice to be with you, Paul and Josh.
0: Now, I think I've given away our topics for this week. It's uh, constitutional recognition, the Indigenous voice, uh, but we'll also discuss the the broader direction of the Liberal Party. To start off with, Julian, um, you've had a decade of advocacy on the voice issue. How did you get involved with it to begin with? And can you tell us about your work uh, founding Uphold and Recognise and on the Joint Committee on Constitutional Recognition? Well,
2: it's a, a funny time of year. Um, it's Passover. Uh, we're in the last couple of days of Passover at the moment. And uh, about 11 years ago, a friend of mine, Damien Freeman, who I first met on the Republic referendum, he and I were constitutional monarchists uh, like Tony Abbott, who was then the Prime Minister. And we had a, a Passover lunch and uh, we were talking about the fact that Tony was now the Prime Minister and that he would promised to make constitutional recognition a, a focus of what he was going to do. Uh, and what we were very con- concerned to do was to try and find a way of putting constitutional recognition forward that we who were constitutional conservatives might support. Uh, we didn't like the idea that he'd had of a preamble and we came up with this idea of an Australian Declaration of Recognition, 300 word statement that could be designed by Australians in a national competition and then you put up three or four different models uh, of it and people could vote in a plebiscite because we understood that at least at that time, there was a sort of a desire to do something symbolic. We thought this was a good way of doing something symbolic and doing something outside the Constitution that people could vote on, but then could be recited at civic and sporting and uh, um, parliamentary and other occasions, we thought would be a really good way to tick the box of you know making a, a full-throated symbolic statement about our past and our present and our future um, without any of the constitutional downsides. And so we set up an organisation called Uphold and Recognise to encourage constitutional conservatives to get involved in the issue of constitutional recognition. About six months later, after this lunch, Noel Pearson came to see Greg Craven, who was the vice-chancellor at Australian Catholic University, who I was working for at the time. And um, he'd gone to talk to constitutional conservatives because he wanted to understand why do people oppose constitutional change and how could you bring those people who are Tend to oppose constitutional change on board on a constitutional recognition referendum. And Greg said to Noel Pearson, Look, um, I'm probably an easier sell. The person you should really go and have a chat with is Julian Lisa. And, you know, um, he made some introductions. And Noel, and I said to Noel, I want to bring my friend Damien Freeman along. And there began a, a series of, of meetings over several months to try and understand where each of us were, were, were coming from. Uh, and I think. The key thing that we had convinced Noel was that symbolic recognition was a bad idea um, because you spend all of this political capital getting something that doesn't shift um, the situation on the ground. And he would convinced us that uh, rather than having a a one-clause Bill of Rights, a no-discrimination clause in the Constitution, something that judicialised the issues around Indigenous recognition you know, a better way might be having an advisory body that could provide some form of consultation. We had tried to convince him that the constitution was a practical and pragmatic charter of government. It's not a place for symbolic statements. We don't have a tradition of a bill of rights here, and that's a good thing so far as I'm concerned. And having a a racial non-discrimination clause is a one-clause bill of rights. Now, what we wanted to do was to find that common ground. And so we worked together to put forward a series of proposals which included the Declaration of Recognition, which included the voice proposal, and which included provisions, other provisions in the Constitution, which I like to think of as the completing the work of 1967, which is rewording the race's power to be an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's power and removing the spent race-based provision, Section 25. Uh, And so Noel and I and Damien and Greg Craven and Anne Toomey, and eventually um, as well, Megan Davis and Marcia Langton, wrote a joint letter to Tony Abbott, uh, and put forward this proposal to him about you know a way forward on 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 these matters so subsequent to that time Tony and Bill Shorten appointed the referendum council to look at what aboriginal people thought constitutional recognition should be all about the referendum council had the uluru statement process where they went around consulting aboriginal people and had they had the um, uh, the eventual meeting which led to the uluru statement Uh, And of course, the then government under Malcolm Turnbull rejected the proposition of the voice to parliament, which had come through from the uh, referendum council. um, And the referendum council also recommended our declaration of recognition as well, it should should be said. Having rejected that, there was a joint select committee established uh, that I chaired with Pat Dodson. And I just want to have a shout out to Pat in case he's listening. I hope uh, Pat's dealing with his his present battles well, and I look forward to seeing him again soon. We, We worked hand in glove together to try and build some consensus around this. Given that the the government had rejected uh, the voice um, but was interested in local and regional solutions, how could we bring this together? And we went around the country, we talked to Indigenous leaders, we went to remote communities, we talked to academics, we talked to lawyers to try and find a pathway forward. And that was the most important work I've done as a parliamentarian. And where we got to was effectively to recommend the process of co-design for how the local, regional and national body would work because different local communities would want to design their bodies differently for their own circumstances. In some communities, there'd be existing bodies which they could use. In other circumstances, they'd want to create a new body. And in other places, there was nothing at all. And we wanted to make sure that that could be done systematically and, and thoughtfully, and that it'd be given enough time, more time than we had as a, as a parliamentary committee. So we recommended that process of co-design. And then we said after the process of co-design was finished, the legal form of the voice could be worked out uh, legislatively, regulatory, constitutionally. The 2019 election, both parties committed to the process of co-design. It was a great achievement to get that. And then the co-design report was obviously the council Langdon report, which recommended the rollout of local and regional bodies first. Then leading in, into a national body. Um, the calmer report was not charged with the issue of constitutional recognition. Pat and I had been presented with 18 different models of constitutional recognition at our committee report. So really the, the next phase after calmer was the response to calmer um and the coalition in government responded to that report and said that they would commit to the rollout of the local and regional bodies first, as recommended by that report. And of course, uh, the coalition lost the election and Labor came to government and Labor's had a different policy and their policy was, let's go to the referendum first. Um, and that's why we are where we are, because um, uh, Labor hasn't rolled out the local and regional bodies. They've not committed to that. Um, they've not committed to putting the, the national body in, in legislation first so people can see how it works. But they have put the referendum on the table and uh, uh, that's what is currently before the parliament and that's what we'll be voting on later this year.
1: Yeah, obviously, you've you've given us a lot to talk about there and we'll unpack a lot of that um, in in a minute. But to go to one of the points that you just raised there, obviously, the the coalition or the the Liberal Party has outlined last week, uh, a, a commitment or I guess a focus on local and regional voices and the government's proposed model is for this national voice. Is it your view that a set of local and regional voices needs a national voice on top? I mean, can one work without the other? You've you, given us the history there, but can one work yeah. without the other? Look, I,
2: I am 100% committed to the local and regional voices. We heard so much about those in 2018 in community. It's what I've heard subsequently since I've um, been the, uh, the the shadow minister for Indigenous Australians too. It's where the dialogue be shifted on the ground. Um, I think that there is benefit of having a local and regional body that cascades into a national body, but I think the national body has some important work to do, but it doesn't have oodles and oodles of work to do, because I think people misunderstand this. In 1967, um, at the referendum that we passed by 90%, it's amazing to think you could get 90% for anything today, we, we gave the Commonwealth power to make laws about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But the truth is, although the Commonwealth has the power to make any law it wants about any aspect of the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, there's actually very few laws that that are made and very few programs that are run by the Commonwealth. Most of the laws and most of the programs that relate to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are actually run at the state and territory level. And and most of the problems, challenges and issues that are raised with us are raised uh, as problems, challenges and issues at the local level. That's why the local and regional are so important. And for the national body to be effective... On those issues which relate to Indigenous people, which we do deal with, I think they have to be firmly plugged into a system of local and regional bodies. I think that's how you you get this to be its most successful.
1: Well, I I guess to to pick up on that, Mark, obviously Linda Burney and the government have said they are committed to that local and regional process, but we haven't exactly heard exactly what their plans would be. To to go to a different topic, that's a very specific one. Let's sort of broaden out a little bit. I think there's probably a lot of people who are coming to this um, voice discussion at the moment. They're starting to tune into the referendum, they're starting to learn about it and hear what it is. Could you tell us in your, you know, you've been involved in this process for a very long time, how do you think the voice would help close the gap? How do you think the voice would actually make a practical impact on improving the lives of Indigenous Australians? I guess the question being... What what would a voice do and why is it important? Look, I think the voice has one key function, uh, and that is improving the, the services,
2: uh, the delivery of government in, in local communities. It means ground-truthing the ideas that are developed in Canberra. Take an example that I know the Minister's currently working on and her predecessor, Ken White, was working on it too, There's a um, remote area employment scheme called the Community Development Programme. It's been criticised for uh, not being responsive to local communities, and it plays differently in different places. An important role that the National Voice could have would be to advise the Minister in reviewing this programme. How should the Community Development Programme be reformed uh, so that it it is more effective in different communities uh, so that uh, uh, some of the... uh, Work-like activity that is done in those communities benefits those communities, so there is more encouragement for people to actually get involved in the program and to participate, uh, and so that, there's a, that there are realistic schemes for where there are thin employment markets, where there's just no real employment opportunity, but also incentives where there are good employment opportunities to actually move from the scheme into employment. And, and that requires a sort of community-by-community community approach. I think when you make policies just from... You know, the smart and well-meaning bureaucrats and and parliamentarians like myself who uh, take a view from Canberra without ground-truthing things, you don't shift the dial and you don't close the gap. And I think we've seen that in too many instances. And that's why I think the voice could make a real difference. It can help us uh, understand better what's going on on the ground and uh, ensure that better policy is made that's more responsive to community.
0: Now, this week, uh, the Liberal Party uh, determined its position to support constitutional recognition but not uh, the voice in the constitution. Uh, you had differences with that position and, and resigned from the front bench. I think in your first answer, you've touched on uh, why symbolic recognition isn't enough. Could we ask why, in your view, does the voice need to go in the constitution, not just legislation?
2: So I think the first thing is the issues of constitutional recognition. You can date back to the 1930s, to the great Yorta Yorta man, William Cooper, presenting his petition to King George. You can date it back to John Howard in 1999, um, attempting to put forward his preamble. You can date it to, uh, effectively, his 2007 commitment that if re-elected, he was going to, to have another crack at this. The point is the debate's been going a fair time. And Uluru changed things. Uluru, with its dialogues and its consultation, led to the view that um, uh, Indigenous people wanted something that wasn't just symbolic in the Constitution. In fact, John Anderson, the former Deputy Prime Minister, chaired a committee back in 2014 that found the same thing, that symbolic recognition for Indigenous people was not enough. So constitutional recognition has come to mean, for Indigenous people, a voice in the Constitution. That's not the case for all Indigenous people, but it's certainly the case for a number of Indigenous leaders who've been participating in, in, in this debate. And and I think that they, they want something practical because, you know, what's the point of doing this unless it's going to shift the dial on the ground? And I think that's a legitimate argument. And they also want to have an institution that will have some sort of permanency. And I don't have a problem with that. I think, uh, I think our constitution creates structures of government and structures of governance. And that's what the voice is designed to be.
0: Now, mid-last year, um, your appointment as Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians raised hopes uh, that the opposition might offer bipartisanship on The Voice. Could you tell us uh, why you took the job then and what would have needed to happen in the intervening months to get coalition support?
2: I I want to just pay tribute to Peter Dutton for a moment, if I may. Um, Peter said at the beginning of this process, when he first became opposition leader, he came with an open mind. And he genuinely did. I've had lots of discussions with Peter. I've travelled with him to remote communities. His appointment of me, given my long history in this space as both Shadow Attorney-General and Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, was a down payment on that genuine commitment he had to to having an open mind and a, and a real engagement to try and get this through. And I have to ask you to excuse me for being partisan, but it's true. The way in which the government dealt with this did not encourage people on, on our side to uh, to see that it was being dealt with fairly. I, I wish they dealt with it differently. We wanted the government to respond to Calmer Langton properly. Uh, we wanted them to set up a proper process to deal with the amendment. We wanted them to to, to put in legislation the form of words, the form of, uh, of the national voice. Peter wrote to them with 15 questions at the beginning of the year. There wasn't an attempt after that to actually properly engage. It was just a sense of outrage that, that any questions had been asked in the first place. And I think that's just such a missed opportunity there. I don't think the government really sought a genuine bipartisan consensus from us. And, and it contrasted to, to the period when we were in government, because throughout the process of referendum council, throughout the, the the two joint select committees, there was a lockstep process between the prime minister on our side and the leader of the opposition, who was largely Bill Shorten for that period, to try and forward these things through. And that process just didn't happen. I, I had lots of good meetings with Linda. I've got great respect for Linda Burney. We'd have discussions. I don't want to go into the nature of that discussion. That's not appropriate. But they were not of the sort of engagement that had characterised things in the past, um, where it was, we want to hear your ideas or hear you keep saying to do this. Well, here, here, here's a pathway to, do, to doing that. Because I think there was a, a narrow pathway where things could have been different, where people put forward the detail, where we'd worked on this together, where we'd, we'd followed the Calmer-Langton roadmap. But ultimately that wasn't happening and, uh, um, and, and I think that's part of the reason that, that, that the party room came to the position
1: it did. You've raised the 15 questions that Peter Dutton um, has had asked, and and obviously yourself, you've also asked some of those questions in Parliament and other places. Labor and and the Liberal Party obviously have a difference of opinion in how much uh, detail should be out there or not out there and that sort of thing. I think the government has committed to releasing more detail as we go through the referendum process. But could I ask you, what level of detail do you think the government should release before the referendum and when? I mean, there's been suggestions about, you know, an exposure draft of what the legislation to set up the voice would look like? You know, should they release, I guess, basic principles of how many members the voice would have or how they're selected or what happens to their representations? I mean, the government's point of view is that those details will be a matter for the government of the day to set via legislation, but it will be this government that sets up the first iteration of the voice. What detail do you think they should put out there to to inform the process? Josh, the high watermark of, of this is that
2: the parliament is presented with a bill, that it is worked through the usual parliamentary processes, committees and and the like, that it passes the parliament, uh, that that its commencement could be contingent on the passage of a successful referendum. But it means that everybody knows what we're voting for. It means that all of the questions can be answered. Uh, And I think you have a better debate when people can answer all the questions. Without that detail being settled, it means that the the debate ends up being broader, there's more matters of of contest and dispute, and people people have questions that are not answered. Uh, and I'm sad that the government didn't do that because I think that, that actually is best practice. And running it through the parliamentary process, through committees, you end up building some consensus around what the body should look like. And as, as you say, we're having a referendum this year. The parliament's got um, another year and a half to run after that. Uh, it's clear that this parliament will legislate uh, the first iteration of what the voice looks like. And yes, it, it will be hard to change. And at least uh, having a first crack at it will give us the best indication of uh, of what there is. Now, the government hasn't chosen that path. The government has chosen instead to, uh, uh, to, to be selective about the detail it's released. Uh, I do think they need to be able to think about well, what are the reasonable questions that people are asking and how can they address them? Because, What's going to happen when we start the referendum campaign is there'll be lots of community debates in town halls, at rotary clubs, at PNCs, at church halls, all of that stuff. And people will ask the same questions that are being asked in Peter's questions and in other questions. And it it just makes the job of people like myself who want to advocate for this harder without that detail.
0: We reported last week that you offered an alternative to shadow cabinet to preserve the option of a free vote, at least until the parliamentary inquiry reported back that would have bought you more time to try and get the changes that you want that are more likely to win conservative support. Why, why was that option rejected? Why was the no uh, locked in before the parliamentary inquiry reports back?
2: Look, I, I don't want to go into um, matters that discussed at shadow cabinet. I, I, I think uh, I should I should leave that. I, I think I might just make a, a couple of general observations. I think the first is that I'm going to continue to advocate um, for the matters that I raised in the in the press club speech. Um, the press club model, I think, is a way of finding common ground. Uh, it's a way of trying to bring this debate together. Um, and what it, what it does effectively is it calls for a financial commitment to the rollout of local and regional bodies, and it basically says there are a couple of aspects of the government's proposed amendment that are causing problems mm-hmm. and concerns. You can still have the voice. You can have it in the constitution. You can respect the supremacy of parliament, but you avoid those concerns if you remove the symbolic statement at the at the top of the uh, uh, at the top of the section, and if you remove clause two, which deals with the issues around um, executive government, which has been the subject of some debate, and also the scope of the matters that the voice can advise on, which is matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. In my view, of course, the voice should be able to advise on those things. Of course, it should be able to uh, advise the executive. But there's no reason why those matters shouldn't be left to Parliament. And I think if we leave those matters to Parliament, like we're leaving everything else of the voice to Parliament, we actually remove one of the big barnacles in the referendum, and that will encourage more people to vote yes.
1: To, to stay with that shadow cabinet meeting, I guess there, there was some confusion about the liberal position because there was there was reported there was paperwork in the party room that said the policy would include a legislated national voice, but then Peter Dutton came out at, at the press conference um, afterwards and you know criticised what he called the Canberra voice. Uh, we we talked earlier on about you know uh, whether a national voice has to click into the local and regional voices model, but can you? Give any clarity on what the liberal position is? Is is there a legislated national voice in that liberal agreed position? Well, I think Peter
2: stated the the, the position, which is the support for local and regional voices uh, and for constitutional recognition. Uh, the position is as as he has stated it. The position I'm arguing for is like the uh, the coalition to argue for local and regional voices, but I'm also arguing for that leading into a national voice, and I'm arguing for. Uh, that uh, the, the constitutional amendment to be adjusted in the ways that I've suggested. And I think that package will bring more Australians on board. It's about trying to find common ground. I think adopting an all or nothing approach can lead to us getting nothing. And I think that would be a tragedy, given that we go into a referendum, uh, given all the work that's been be, been put in. Um, we want to try and maximise the number of people who are voting yes. And that means listening to the arguments of people who have been advocates of the no case who've raised issues and doubts and try to work out how can we address some of them and to come to it with a, a spirit of goodwill.
1: So that, that's a no to a national voice in the Liberal Party model then? Well, that's the, the way in which the leader has stated it is, is, is
2: the policy of the party, which is local and regional um, voices legislated and, uh, and, and a process of constitutional recognition.
1: So you, you said yesterday on on Tuesday as well that um, you'll be campaigning for yes. Um, I, I think you indicated that um, even you'll obviously be pushing your your press club model for the next six weeks, but that you would be campaigning for yes. I think probably no matter the result of those representations, is that, is that right?
2: Yes, I, I wanted to make it clear to people that I'm not playing a game here. That um, I am I'm, I'm committed to this referendum. I'm committed to seeing it get through. But because of because of my strong commitment, because of my long involvement in this. I want people to to believe me and take my bona fides at my word that when I'm putting forward these amendments, they're not done to play some game. They are just genuinely my view. There are Australians who are concerned about the voice, who want to find a way to vote yes, but the current model raises questions and the current model is too much a take it or leave it model. And, and I think the government can really create a lot of goodwill around this by adopting some of the suggestions I have put forward.
1: And just one, one very last one, just to sort of wrap things up in, the, in this area of things. What, what does that campaign look like? I mean, obviously, there's been a, a few other Liberal um, colleagues of yours in the Federal Party room that have indicated they'll be um, supporting a yes vote as well. What does this look like for a Liberal Party? Is there a voice equivalent of the Liberals and Nationals for a yes campaign that we saw during the Marriage Law Postal Survey, for instance?
2: Look, I understand there's some talk about, about that sort of thing, but my focus at the moment has just been really on trying to get uh, the press club model up. Um, I think there'll be many months to work out what, uh, what, what a sort of campaign will look like after, after that. But if we can get the press club model up, I, I think it's a real game changer.
0: Now, your speech to the uh, young Liberals earlier this year uh, warned the government that they are in danger of losing you on The Voice, but you also talked about the need uh, for the Liberals to re-engage with demographics that are drifting away from the conservative side of politics, including young people and, and some multicultural communities. Are you able to offer a view about you know how the party should be doing that?
2: Well, I suggested at, uh, at the young Liberal um, speech that we needed actually to try and engage a broader cross-section of young people than to get involved in, in politics today. You know, um, I know in my electorate, uh, many older people see their involvement in the Liberal Party as just part of their civic duty, just like they're involved in their local church or their local sports club and so on, because they sort of share the broad values. I think we are poor as a political organisation in actually going out and making the case and asking people to join. And I think it's particularly important that the young Liberals engage a broader range of young people looking for young leaders in other organisations. You know, people at the university who are engaged in running the ski club have political skills and may well share our values, but have probably never been approached. Um, I also think the young Libs have a particular um, role to play in terms of... uh, both the way in which young people engage in politics, which is different. I'm 47 in a couple of months uh, to people my age uh, engage or even older people than that engage in politics. I think they've also uh, got a really important role in dividing the issues that are of particular importance to young people. I mean, obviously, issues around housing affordability um, uh, is is a key issue for young people. Uh, I know it's it's why we had the policy in relation to people using the superannuation to uh, uh, help them with a the deposit for their first home, but it's those sorts of ideas that I really want to hear from from the young liberals. I think this is their moment, um, and uh, given we didn't do well with 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 younger people in the last election, um, I think it's really important that we we think about how we engage. Um, I've got um, a couple of uh, young people at a local school that I'm mentoring at the moment who are interested in careers in politics, and on our first occasion we met, I said to them, "I'm really interested in how you get your news." In in my day, we read. Uh, uh, the Herald and the Daily Telegraph, got them both delivered every day to, to home and um, dad would read one and I'd read the other and we'd swap. Um, and we'd all watch the, the evening news together Channel 9 and then Channel 2. The world's completely different today, obviously. But what surprised me is that neither of them read your publication or any of the other um, major daily publications. Uh, they're getting their news from TikTok. Um, they're getting their news from 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 podcasts. They're getting their news from blogs and um it means they they are understanding things with a different level of depth to the level of depth that i think you know uh, we got back in the in the, the good old days quote unquote um but i also think um uh, that they are they're just engaging in different spaces and i think it's important that you know we we should be there to engage with them where where they where they're getting information um because if we're not we, we will lose that generation
0: well, it's a good thing we we run a live blog, we ha- we have pods and we have a TikTok, so we're 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 trying we're trying to grab them uh, all the same. Now you mentioned economic policies uh like a housing policy there, but I want to ask about social policies as well, uh because Simon Birmingham, who's a leading moderate, has said that the liberals need to avoid being perceived as the nasty party. Uh would a free vote on voice um ha- have helped knock the hard edges off the Liberal Party and and show that- You know, you can be engaged uh, in in social issues uh, as well?
2: Look, I think one of the great benefits of the Liberal Party is that we believe in freedom and conscience. Our front bench is bound to the decisions of shadow cabinet and the party room. Um, But our back bench um, are able to campaign on whatever issues that that they wish to and vote however they wish to. And that's different to the Labor Party. When you join the Labor Party, you sign the pledge and you have to be bound by the decisions of caucus, whether you're on the front bench or the back bench. I resign from the front bench uh, in order to exercise my freedom to campaign for something I believe in. I think that's a great strength of our party. And I think, you know, the fact that um, I will be out there campaigning, yes. The fact that uh, Jeremy Rockliffe, the Premier of Tasmania, the Liberal Premier of Tasmania will be campaigning, yes, indicates that we are we are a broad church. It indicates one of the strengths of our party. and And I think... Uh, that's important. I hope to provide some some leadership for those people who uh, uh, who would vote for us, who who are inclined to support the voice to say, yeah, it's okay. There are some liberals who are out there that that, that, that say that this is a good idea.
0: Now you've made a great virtue of having a free say, uh, so we'd be very keen to hear. Uh, other than the voice, are there other differences of approach or policy uh, that you can offer now that you're the, the shackles of, uh, of uh, solidarity on the, the shadow front bench are off, and now that you're a backbencher, are there other things the party should be doing differently?
2: Look, I'm sorry to disappoint your 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 listeners and and your readers, but. You know, I, I I don't think that you should go off and do this every day. This is not a decision I took lightly. Um, uh, this you really have to ask yourself very cl- closely about. You know, what are your values? What do you believe in? What are your lines in the sand? What do you want to demonstrate to your children? Uh, that has been important to you, important enough to stand to stand up for something where you believe in, even even when it costs. And that's why I made the decision in in relation to to this. But I'm a Uh, I'm a a loyal Liberal. I'm the Liberal member for Barahara. I support the leadership of Peter Dutton. Um, I'm not going to be off, uh, running off and creating all sorts of different agendas on on, on other issues. Um, I'm here to do a job to try and work to to get this referendum uh, uh, amended uh, and then to go and campaign for it. That's why I'm on the backbench, because I've got the freedom to do that now. And that's what I want to concentrate on doing.
0: I think that might be all that we have time for. Thank you so much for joining us, Julian. I know that it's not every day uh, that one makes a momentous decision uh, like uh, quitting the front bench. So so thank you for joining us and, and explaining your thoughts on this important topic.
2: Thanks so much, Paul, and thanks, Josh. Good to be with you.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out